0: Shalom alechem. Shalom Aleichem, that's a traditional Hebrew greeting that means peace be with you or, or peace be upon you. If you were sitting in private, taking a moment to think over the things in your life that are causing you the most distress right now, and you, you heard these words, Shalom Aleichem, peace be with you, what kind of peace would first come to your mind? Well, it depends on the season that you find yourself in, doesn't it? If you find yourself in a war-torn country surrounded by warring factions, well, the peace you are most longing for is the end of war. If you are being persecuted for your faith or, or oppressed for some other aspect of your identity, well, the peace you are most longing for is the end of persecution and oppression. In our context, perhaps the peace you are most longing for has to do with conflict in your workplace or conflict in your household or or family or conflict within this church. What kind of peace are you most longing for? For you, maybe it's the peace within your heart. Maybe what you are most longing for is an internal peace from an ongoing struggle with anxiety, regardless of any given set of circumstances. For our passage this morning speaks to two kinds of peace in particular, first to peace within the church, peace between members of the body of Christ, and then to peace within our own hearts, regardless of our circumstances. I invite you to turn in your Bible to Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. You can find it on page 198 in the second half of the Pew Bible, Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, I'll Be reading from the English Standard Version hear the word of the Lord to you. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word to us. By the Holy Spirit, apply your word to our hearts that we may be at peace deep in our souls, and that we may may be makers of peace in the world in which you have sent us. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, you probably noticed that these nine verses have an unusually high density of commands, of of imperatives. There are actually ten commands in the span of nine verses. And so we might be tempted to, to read this as a string of largely unrelated standalone commands. But I, I don't believe that does justice to the, the flow of thought in these verses or in the letter thus far as this section really is the conclusion of the main body of the letter. Verse one begins with therefore, drawing our attention to the, the previous section where Paul has spoken of the matchless worth of knowing Jesus, the matchless worth of becoming like Jesus, no matter the cost, no matter the difficulties added to life for those who follow Jesus. Paul has just made clear that he has not yet arrived at knowing Jesus or becoming like Jesus perfectly, but even so, he's made clear that he and we must all must press on to grow in this. We must not set our minds on, quote, earthly things, he says, for, quote, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he comes, he will will bring to completion our spiritual transformation. Not only that, but also our physical transformation, the transformation of our bodies. Therefore, he says, stand firm in the Lord. Do not abandon the faith in the face of opposition, he's saying to the Philippians. Do not compromise the faith by adopting Jewish old covenant customs, even though doing so may have alleviated some of the opposition that was being faced by that church in Philippi. See, Jews were not persecuted by the Romans to the same degree that Christians were. There was a temptation there to identify as a Jew, to adopt those old covenant customs. No, Paul is saying, stand firm thus in the Lord. He gives 10 commands that seem to be flowing from that thus, stand firm thus in the Lord. 10 additional examples of what it means to stand firm in the Lord the first being peace and unity within the church. But just before addressing a serious pastoral matter that involves identifying two women by name, he first piles up six terms of endearment in verse 1. Do you see that? My, My brothers and sisters, the church is a family, whom I love, whom I long for, my joy, my crown, my beloved, I don't think you can find another verse in the epistles of the apostles that has more terms of endearment stacked up than this one. What does it mean that the Philippians are his joy and his crown? Well, Even while he is in chains in prison in Rome, the faith and the spiritual growth of other believers continues to bring him joy. The Philippians are his crown in that they are the fruit of his ministry labors, showing that he did not labor among them in vain, as he put it in chapter 2. And thus, identifying them as his joy and crown, it draws attention to their shared mission, which is critical for the topic of disunity that he's about to address. See, the key to building unity is understanding that it can only come by uniting around a common goal. And unity in the church comes by striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's how he put it in chapter one. We must all be pulling in the same direction with the same set of priorities. Part of standing firm in the Lord is, is presenting a united front. A church cannot be effective if there are warring factions pulling the church in different directions. Many great civilizations have collapsed, not primarily due to external enemies, but due to internal disunity. Many speculate that that is what led to the fall of the Roman Empire that seemed so invincible at this time in history. Internal disunity. Paul writes, verse 2, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Everything we know about Iodia and Syntyche is found here. What was their disagreement? We don't know. Though, had it been a, a theological matter, it seems highly unlikely that Paul would have has said this without siding with one of the two women. We, we saw how directly and strongly Paul addressed the false teaching of the Judaizers in the previous chapter, how directly and strongly he addresses false teaching in all of his letters. So it seems unlikely that it was a theological dispute. It, it seems equally unlikely that it was a matter of one of the women Embracing or promoting a lifestyle of sin, given the way that Paul addresses those kinds of matters elsewhere. So, if it wasn't theological, and it wasn't a lifestyle matter, then, then what was it? Whatever it was, it was important enough to be called out in this letter to the whole church. Remember, Paul's letters were intended to be read aloud to the churches. Imagine Yodia and Syntyche sitting in the congregation having heard the the call to unity in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and then hear their names read aloud, it seems that most likely it had to do with some decision in the life and direction of the church in order for it to be in the letter. After all, consider how many non-theological, non-moral disagreements have split churches. From the color of the carpet to how to go about repairing or updating the building to other spending-related matters, to leadership appointments, to ministry approaches and priorities. These are largely matters of prudence, meaning of wisdom, meaning there's no clear-cut right or wrong answers. Churches must not divide over matters of prudence. Over the last two years, there has been a sharp rise in churches in America dividing over matters of prudence. This is due in part to the increasingly tribalistic nature of the broader culture in which we live, intentionally fueled through social media and other media by by powerful entities, including foreign countries who want Western democracies to constantly be at war within, either to weaken us or to otherwise profit off of our divisiveness. That's the tribalistic culture in which we live. And churches have proven not to be immune to this divisiveness, to this spirit of demonizing anyone who disagrees with you, seeing them as a threat to your identity and to your well-being. Churches have been dividing over disagreements about whether to stop meeting or to restart meeting, given the anxieties and the existence of viruses. Disagreements about policies involving masks and social distancing. This really has divided churches. Disagreements about whether to discuss and what to say about novel vaccines. Disagreements about whether to discuss and what to say about race-related stories in the news. Disagreements about whether to discuss and what to say about elections and politicians and political parties. Earthly matters of prudence are dividing healthy churches in our country like never before at a time when Christians can and should be standing out as radically different from the world by displaying an unnatural, otherworldly kind of charity and grace toward one another and toward the world. Hear what Paul says in verse 3. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, apparently the church would have understood not only what the disagreement was, but who this true companion was that Paul was asking to provide them help. Some speculate that it refers to a Praphroditus, who was spoken of early in the letter. He, he was the one that was sent from Philippi to Paul in Rome to send a gift, to carry a gift to him and to serve him there who became sick, and now he is sending back to Philippi, likely carrying this letter. Some think maybe he is that true companion. Others speculate that the word companion was actually someone's name, Loyal Zizikus. Pretty cool name, Zizikus. Well, many commentators believe also that it could just refer to the church as a whole. Well, Either way, note note that Paul expects fellow church members to help one another move past grievances to move past disagreements that are hindering fellowship. It's not meddling, it's commanding, help one another in this. And yet again, Paul draws attention to their shared mission, noting that these women had labored side by side with him in the gospel. Our unity as a church is built around the advance of the gospel. That mission is what sets our priorities. That mission is what sets our direction. But that unity and that mission flows out of hearts that have been transformed by the gospel. With our names written in the book of life, he says. At the final judgment, as described in in Revelation chapter 20, books will be opened. And every person who has ever lived will be judged according to every deed they have ever committed as recorded in those books. And every person will be found guilty. Every person will be found deserving of an eternal punishment which they will receive unless their name is written in one other book, the book of life. In Revelation 21 verse 27, that book of life is described as the Lamb's book of life because it contains the name of every person whose life has been purchased by the blood of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. The name of every person who places their trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins before they die. And Paul is confident that the name Yodia and the name Tsuntuke are written in that book. They are going to spend eternity together. They might as well start getting along now. They have been reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus. And thus they can and they must be reconciled to one another. Now, this doesn't mean that that we as a church have to debate any given matter until we all come to perfect agreement. That's not what reconciliation requires. The, The phrase translated here as to agree in the Lord, to agree, that's identical with the phrase translated in chapter two, verse two, as being of the same mind. It's the same verb used three verses later in chapter two, verse five. Have this mind among yourselves. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Have that mind among yourselves. In calling Euodia and Syntyche to be the same mind, to to think the same way, he's calling them to adopt the same humble, others-oriented mindset of Christ. He elaborated upon that mindset in chapter 2, verse 3, saying, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. See, gospel engendered humility. That is the path to peace within the church. Because gospel engendered humility. It enables us to disagree with any given decision or position made in the church and and to move on in joyful, loving fellowship and gospel partnership, trusting God to work in his church, even through decisions that we disagree with. That's what we're being called to. Trusting God to work in his church. Having just spoken of their names being written in the book of life in verse 3, Paul then commands them in verse 4 Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. Rejoice always? Even while mourning the loss of a spouse after many decades of marriage? Even when facing an inoperable, untreatable cancerous tumor? Are we really to rejoice? Even with the intense physical and emotional pain that we so often experience? Yes. Again, he doubles down. I will say, rejoice. No matter the circumstances, Christians can rejoice. Jesus puts it this way in Luke chapter 10, verse 20. Rejoice. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. As Paul put it in the previous chapter, rejoice in the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. For intimacy with our Lord and Savior is the Christian's greatest source of joy, and circumstances can't change that. The command to rejoice in the Lord always, it speaks equally to the topic of peace within the church in the preceding verses. But it also speaks to the topic of lack of peace within your heart, addressed in verse 6. We're kind of in a transitional section here, verses 4 and 5, transitioning from peace within the church to, to peace within your heart. Because the command to rejoice in the Lord always, how does it do this? How does it speak to peace no matter what kind of peace we lack? Well, it does so because it calls us to allow the gospel to humble us and to align our hearts with what matters most. That enables us and it motivates us to seek peace within the church and to adopt an eternal perspective in life in regard to our fears and our concerns and our anxieties. Likewise, the two parts of verse 5 speak equally to the topic of peace within the church and the topic of peace within our hearts. Verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The word translated as reasonableness is, is difficult to map onto any one English word. Other English versions translate it as gentleness or graciousness, reasonableness. Well, thinking of the conflict between Yodia and Sintiki, reasonableness makes sense. You, you can't reason with an unreasonable person, right? You can't get them to set aside their own interests for the sake of the interests of others. You can't get them to lay down their rights or their pride for the sake of unity. But again, the gospel humbles us. The gospel helps us to put things in their proper perspective, thus breeding the reasonableness needed to to seek peace within the church and breeding the reasonableness needed to to be at peace with the unknowns that lie ahead and tempt us to be anxious. And finally, the second half of verse 5 Five words, the Lord is at hand. Now, whether that phrase, the Lord is at hand, means that the Lord is near in time, meaning that he could return at any moment, or whether it means that the Lord is near in space, meaning that his spiritual presence is with us, well, it's unclear. Just as it is unclear in English. And it may have been left intentionally ambiguous by Paul. Because either way, we must live in light of the fact that Christ is returning. Christ is returning to judge the living and the dead. We must live in light of the fact that he can return at any moment, that he sees our every deed and knows our every thought. We must also live in light of his comforting and empowering presence with us through the Holy Spirit. Because he is the judge, because he is the one with the power to subject all things to himself, as he said a few verses earlier. We don't have to be everyone else's judge. We don't have to subject them to us. And thus we can be at peace within the church, but also we can entrust our cares and concerns to him and be comforted by his presence with us. So moving from this transitional section of verses four and five to verse six, we're moving from from verses that speak to kind of both kinds of lack of peace, lack of peace within the church to now looking at lack of peace within our heart. Verse six, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. The anxious person lives in the future, rather than living in the present. Their mind is consumed with what may or may not happen down the road, and thus with matters that are beyond their control. And thus the antidote to anxiety is prayer. Because when we go to God in prayer, we are forcing ourselves to acknowledge our utter dependence upon him for whatever may come. We're forcing ourselves to acknowledge our sinful yearning to be in control of the future. Our sinful yearning to be God. See, prayer helps us to think rightly about what we do and don't have control of. Prayer helps us to accept this reality. And to entrust to God that which is His alone, that which is beyond our control. We've talked about grumbling before, in the same way that grumbling over our present circumstances is an expression of unbelief that God is at work in those circumstances. Exodus 17:7. 7. Well, so too, in the same way, anxiety over future circumstances. It's an expression of unbelief that God is at work in those circumstances. But praying, praying about those anxieties combats that unbelief that God is in control with faith. Because prayer is an act of faith. Prayer exercises and strengthens the faith that we need. Not faith that everything's going to work out, not faith that the, the things that you most fear won't come to pass. They might even if you pray, but rather prayer exercises and strengthens faith that God is in control and that he knows what he's doing in his world. He knows what he's doing in and through your life. Notice that in the middle of this call to prayer is the instruction to do so with thanksgiving. No matter what the content of your prayer is, no matter how dire the circumstances you're facing are, you can rejoice in the Lord and you can give thanks for your salvation. And you can give give thanks for the supernatural peace that God gives to those who ask for it. Verse seven, having prayed, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This supernatural peace that God gives to those who ask for it, it surpasses all understanding. Meaning it's not reliant on having all the answers. This peace does not require certainty that the things you most fear won't come to pass. It doesn't require that. This peace doesn't require understanding of all that God is doing. Because this peace enables and empowers you to trust that God is at work, whatever may come. This peace of God, it it actively guards, it sets a garrison around your heart and your mind. As a garrison of soldiers protects a city. None of us should go a day without this protection around our hearts and our minds. And so we must pray. In the context of spiritual warfare, the Apostle Peter puts it this way. In 1 Peter 5, verse 7. He says that we must cast all of our anxieties on God because he cares for you. We must daily transfer those burdens from our thin, frail shoulders onto his almighty, broad shoulders. And when we do so, he will give us peace. Now, that might not mean much coming from a middle-aged, middle-class American in 2022, but this command to not be anxious about anything and to rejoice always is spoken from the Apostle Paul while in prison, with this particular imprisonment having already lasted at least two years and with his fate unknown. Paul understood anxiety, and he's giving us the antidote. Pray. Trust God. Looking now at verses 8 through 9, notice that there's some parallelism between verses 6 through 7 and verses 8 through 9. Verses 6 through 7 instruct us to pray. Pray so that we may have the peace of God. Verses 8 through 9 instruct us to meditate and imitate so that we might have the God of peace. Pray for the peace of God. Meditate and imitate others who follow God that you may have God of peace verse eight finally brothers whatever is true whatever is honorable whatever is just whatever is pure whatever is lovely whatever is commendable if there is any excellence if there's anything worthy of praise think about these things well the parallelism of these four verses places this command to think deeply in parallel with the command to pray Given that, and given the preceding verse speaking of the peace of God and the following verse speaking of the God of peace, it seems that that Paul is calling us to meditate upon the God to whom we pray for peace. After all, is there anything more true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, or worthy of praise than God? Think about these things. And notice that despite what the world tells you, the solution to lack of peace in your life and lack of peace in your heart is not to empty your mind through transcendental meditation or anything of the like. The solution is to fill your mind with what is good and true. Fill your mind with God as he has revealed himself in his word. Meditate upon God's word daily. Let that be your New Year's resolution. In contrast that with all the the filth that we could be filling our minds with, right? The godless shows and media that we could be consuming. Even the so-called news that is clearly designed to promote fear and hatred of others. Fill your mind with the things of God. Recall in in chapter 3, verse 19, that those whose minds are set on earthly things are destined for destruction. And so we must set our minds on heavenly things. Verse nine, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So you see, he's moved from praying and meditating to now doing. Having having given us a list of moral virtues in verse eight, he's now calling us to imitate those who practice these virtues. Now, while both verses 8 and 9 do somewhat further the instruction regarding lack of peace within your heart, lack of internal peace, with this transition to putting things into practice, I think Paul is circling back to the lack of peace within the church that started the section. He's saying, Seek to make peace with others, and the God of peace will be with you. Bringing peace both to your heart and to your relationships. There's no peace apart from the work of the Holy Spirit among us, right? Hear how Jesus described the gift of the Holy Spirit that was to come when he spoke of him in John 14 on his way to the cross. He told his disciples this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and he will be in you. The things that I have spoken to you while I am still with you are these. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then listen to this. What will the Holy Spirit impart to those in whom he dwells? Peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. And so we can say, Shalom Aleichem, peace be with you. Do you long for peace in your life and in your heart? Then pray, meditate, and imitate others who know God. And the peace-giving Holy Spirit will be with you and he will be in you. Let us pray. Father, we ask for you to steer our attention and our affections away from earthly things and onto matters of eternal significance, that we might truly seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, and in so doing, discover unity, joy, and peace. As we bring our concerns and our conflicts before you in prayer, by the Holy Spirit, grant us peace in knowing you and lead us to be makers of peace in all our relationships. Bless the preaching of your word in and for the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.